Welcome back to Three Right Turns, the podcast hosted by me, a perhaps foolish but nevertheless determined optimist. What a last few weeks we've had. I have started and stopped more outlines in the last 14 days than I think at any time in the last year. We've had Trump's taxes, a shotgun Supreme Court nomination, Melania as a frontline fighter in the war against Christmas, the presidential debates, Trump has contracted COVID-19. Holy shit, it's been insane. But when the news gets this crazy, I like to take a step back and talk about the structural, long-term, evergreen issues that we face in this country and the world. Because for good or ill, Trump will eventually be gone. But the work we have to do to truly make this country great, to make this planet worth living on, is generational. And today I want to talk about a cheery topic, one of those long-term projects to keep our planet cool type topics, fascism. I was having a few discussions lately with friends that I think of as moderate centrists, and I let out that I was of the opinion that Trump was at the very least a proto-fascist, if not an outright fascist. And I got pushback in this day and age. I was being hysterical, wasn't I? Things aren't that bad. I'm I'm reading too much into things. And that surprised me. So I thought I'd take a step back and think about this a bit. And maybe those thoughts would be useful to you and your conversations, your thought processes, uh, things to look for in the future. Fascism is a word that everybody knows, everybody uses, everybody thinks they understand. Fascism is the Nazis. Fascism is what Indiana Jones fought against. Fascism is an experience the world went through a long time ago, and then we swore never again. Fascism is a kind of universal evil that can be appealed to, like child predators or the devil. It's just seen as evil for evil's sake. You don't have to explain what's bad about it because it's self-evident. Such a powerful word becomes incredibly useful as a label because if you can pin the label of fascist on your enemy and make it stick, well... I mean, who's going to be on the side of fascism? And if you're fighting against fascism, well, damn, what more do you need to do to get your side fired up? It's so powerful and so useful, it becomes very tempting to keep using it again and again. But like the boy that cried wolf, if you keep yelling fascist every time your side loses power and the goose stepping and the panzer tanks and the death camps don't materialize, you start to become desensitized to it. The word loses its power. We all live in a world where we know what fascism means, but we've forgotten what fascism feels like. If our great-grandparents were alive, they could tell us, but we ourselves don't know what it feels like to be living in a free society that starts to slip. Growing up, I heard many governments referred to as fascist. It was all slightly before my time and before I was paying attention to politics generally, But I heard a great deal about how various members of the Reagan administration was fascist or across the pond, members of the Thatcher administration were fascist. They're fascist because of their foreign policy, their domestic policy, their apparent callous disregard for human life. And as a former Republican, uh, I can certainly see some merits in an argument. But were they really fascist? What would that mean? In my teenage years, I was first acquainted with the concept of Godwin's Law. Maybe you've heard of it. This law, which 
really is just one of the first internet memes, was developed by a person named Mike Godwin, who also has the distinction of being the first staff counsel for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, one of the premier organizations for the promotion of internet and digital rights. But Godwin's law states that as any online discussion grows longer, the probability of comparisons to the Nazis or Hitler approaches 100%. It didn't matter if you were arguing about potted plants or Star Trek or abortion rights, gun control. Any argument of sufficient length would generate sufficient heat, which would eventually lead to one side raging about the other being fascist. The practical application of the law was that whichever side made the Nazi comparison first, they lost. As that was a sign that they were out of any serious, reasonable arguments and were left with just hyperbole. I want you to think back to the 2000 U.S. elections, Bush versus Gore. I'm sure a lot of you remember those times, while for some of you, it's about as ancient history as Carter v. Johnson was to me. I was at the time a 24-year-old master of the universe. I was able to engage in an intense debate about any topic and any subject, all while maintaining a cool, calm demeanor, which let me tell you, it's a lot easier to do when the subjects and topics don't really personally pertain to you. But man, were Gore supporters, those damn liberals, hell mad about seemingly everything. I used to really enjoy listening to the Diane Rehm show and Talk of the Nation hosted by Juan Williams and finding their increasingly deranged callers and guests off-putting and annoying. Bush was called the commander in thief. He's a fascist. Online, people on the left styled Bush as Bush Hitler which was kind of neat because, you know, you just smash Bush and Hitler together. And as a bonus, it kind of sound like bullshitter in your head. And and Bush was a st- stupid moron, but he's also this unstoppable Hitler figure. And everything he did was described as the actions of a fascist regime. Supreme Court appointments, fascism. Man didn't particularly care much for reading newspapers, stupid fascism. No child left behind, Fascism, Afghan and Iraq wars, definitely fascism. Patriot Act, oh boy, literally speedrunning fascism. And conservatives called this phenomenon Bush derangement syndrome, abbreviated as BDS. And I was a firm believer in it. Bush seemed to have this unique power to enrage his political opponents and reduce them to just gibbering nonsense. There was no sense of proportion. How could this supposedly stupid, incompetent man that was often depicted as a literal chimpanzee and his cabinet of unqualified opportunists and thieves be simultaneously this sophisticated, well-oiled machine that effortlessly bests his enemies? Now, I grew up on the Internet. I, I knew about Godwin's Law and the left... And broadly speaking, the Democrats had unequivocally lost the argument. Now, I know there are a lot of people listening. They're probably getting upset. Aaron, they say the Patriot Act was fascist and Reagan's disregard for the lives of the poor, not to mention their record when it comes to LGBT rights. And uh, to which I say, damn, Bush derangement syndrome has no cure and apparently will be a lifelong struggle. I'm I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just kidding. Obviously, I have a different perspective on things now, but still. I'm skeptical about whether Bush or Reagan would meet the description of fascism. For one, there was never a doubt in my mind that those administrations would largely respect the rule of law. They might have to be investigated, sure. They might have to be taken to court, yeah. But if they were ruled against, they would comply. When they were removed from power by a lawful democratic process, they would transfer that power peacefully. Now let's skip ahead to the Obama years, because... 
if you've listened to this podcast from the beginning, you know that I did not support Obama's first election. I was a mechaniac, but I was growing disillusioned with Republican rule. I was already convinced that the war on terror had been an ill-conceived venture, one that was hastily undertaken on a tide of some of the darker human emotions, revenge, greed, hubris, all among them, sloppily prosecuted, having no victory condition, no exit plan. Worse, it seemed likely that people at the highest levels of power had lied to the American people and to our allies around the world by presenting trumped up or even fabricated evidence to justify the war. And for what? Thousands of Americans dead, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis and Afghanis dead, emboldened and even more radical terrorists operating in the Middle East, erosion of our civil rights and an economy that was in the shitter with trillions gone from our coffers that could have helped. So I didn't initially support Obama, but I remember the phenomenon of Bush derangement syndrome and being, again, this rational, cool, collected conservative. Hell, I thought the conservatives would do much better in the way of loyal opposition to this new president. But boy, was I ever wrong. Obama derangement syndrome was even worse. Symptoms of ODS included believing that Obama was a foreign sleeper Muslim terrorist sent to impose Sharia law on the United States, which, of course, is something a fascist would do. Bring our health care system closer in line with other first world nations was Soviet style communism. And according to popular horseshoe theory, communism is just fascism in the infrared spectrum. But it's still fascism. Educating people about the truth on climate change and systemic and structural racism, well, that's just like forcing people into re-education camps, man. That's fascism. Obama planned on making whites obsolete in their own country by employing open borders policy. Hello, that's genocide, fascism. Obama securing his grip on power by passing out-of-control executive orders, super fascist. Routine military exercises, hell nah. Hell nah, man. Those are an attempt to seize control of the great state of Texas through Operation Jade Helm. That's something a fascist would do. And that was just the stuff that had some sort of substance. The man was criticized for wearing tan suits, for preferring spicy mustard, and for having the temerity to be married to a lovely, intelligent black woman and raising what are, by all accounts, bright children who were loved very much. The man who followed an infamous philanderer and sobered up cokehead and drunk, this man, he's a tyrant, he's a king, he's a fascist. Halfway through Obama's two terms, it became clear to me that Bush derangement syndrome had metastasized into Obama derangement syndrome had become the worse for it. But I remain convinced that Obama would respect the rule of law, that when it came time for his term to end, that he would peacefully transfer power, which, you know, of course he did. And now we have Trump. Early on in the Trump administration, even before he took office, conservative commentators were talking about Trump derangement syndrome, that people were already forming a pathological hatred for the man that caused him to be completely unable to objectively formulate thoughts on his actual policy. And they could do nothing but just reflexively hate and oppose. Now, I have never personally reflexively hated a president before. Never, ever. Not as as people anyway. I, I didn't hate Reagan. For one, I was too young to. And for another, he's the only president in U.S. history to ever visit my hometown of Mooresville, Indiana. And let me tell you, that was a red letter day for little kid me. I didn't hate Bush Sr. I didn't hate Bush Jr. 
Certainly didn't hate Obama. I found him almost impossibly likable. The closest I ever got was like Bill Clinton because he's just so sleazy. And I found that kind of breathy way he had of talking grated on my nerves. And he was kind of squinty. His face is too ruddy. (sighs) But I didn't hate him. I hated athletes, head coaches, certainly many political commentators, but never a president. But Trump, Trump, I have a hard time dealing with. I sometimes think he was literally put on this earth to test all of my base assumptions about what it means to be a decent man, a decent father, a decent husband, a decent person. His dress, grooming, personal effect, his manner of speaking, the way he cooks his steaks, the content of his words. It's just all a lot. It's very hard for me to deal with. Now, is it coincidental that this first president that I've come to hate is the one that I think is fascist? Am I suffering from Trump derangement syndrome? Oh, I mean, I don't think so. But one of the side effects of a derangement syndrome is that you lose the ability to critically analyze your point of view about the target of your derangement, right? But I go down as policies, giving huge tax breaks to billionaires and just a small fraction to the middle class and the working poor. Is that fascist or just a policy I disagree with? Starting and losing trade wars, is is that fascism or disagreement? Kicking transgender troops and immigrants who have served our country with distinction out of the military, is that fascism or policy disagreement? Locking children in cages in the borders, forced medical sterilizations, fascism or, I mean, it feels like fascism. There's this joke that went around a few years back, right as we were discovering the extent of the practice of of putting the children in the cages. It had two captions for the years of 2016 and 2018, and it's from a conservative point of view. In 2016, it says, you guys are all being hysterical. You're talking like Trump is going to put people in concentration camps. And in 2018 said, first of all, it's insulting that you'd even refer to them as concentration camps. And here now in 2020, there's evidence of a staggering amount of child abuse and invasive medical procedures being done without proper consent at these compounds. And those fears were justified, right? But half the country still doesn't agree. I feel like this captures the kind of goalpost moving that we see in things like this. On the one hand, there are people who have this hair trigger for calling out fascism, fascist, fascist, fascist. On the other, you have people who think that fascism cannot exist unless it's literally goose stepping down the street wearing swanky Hugo Boss uniforms, blaring Wagner from loudspeakers while screaming Heil Hitler. That can't be the definition. Certainly, it's not one that's very helpful for the question that stands before us, which is, how do you know if your country is in danger of falling to fascism? preferably before it's too late to stop it. Now, a lot of people have tried coming up with a list or some useful diagnosis, and that little cottage industry has really exploded in the last few years. But back in 1995, Umberto Eco wrote an essay called Ur-Fascism that tried to pin down this essential general properties of a fascist ideology. And I like this one because I feel like Mr. Eco knew what he was talking about. He was a scholar, a philosopher, a writer, But also important to his qualifications were that he grew up under the world's first ever fascist regime in Mussolini's Italy. He knew what that felt like. He also saw the futility of trying to define something like totalitarianism or authoritarianism or fascism by how alike it might be to the National Socialist Party in Germany or the Italian Fascist Party. Because 
if fascism would return, it probably wouldn't look like those in terms of exact philosophy or aesthetic. But seeing how much his country and the world suffered from its brief plunge into fascism, he was interested in distilling it down to its essence nevertheless. This is something he called Ur-Fascism. And I think it helps that he pinned it in 1995 because one thing I'm sure we can all agree on, no matter our political bent, is that the middle of the Clinton administration was a pinnacle of fascist thought in America. I, I kid. I kid. I, I, I Maybe I hate Clinton. Uh, Clinton's almost certainly a serial harasser, likely a rapist, but fascist? Ah, I don't know. Come on. But seriously, the problem with the myriad of essays that have been written, especially since like 2015, about the potential rise of fascism in America and around the world is that they are essentially post hoc descriptions of fascism tailor made to fit the current Trump administration actions. A, a, a fascist is wears orange makeup and has bad hair and poorly tailored suits and ties to hang down to his knee. It's that kind of stuff. And it's silly because back when I was a devout Christian, one of the pillars of my faith was the unerring accuracy of Bible prediction. Man, if you can foretell the destruction of various world empires hundreds of years in advance, that's very impressive to me. And if you could foretell the rise of a man thousands of years before his appearance as the Messiah, well, wow. I mean, what man can do that? But then I found out that most scholars and historians believe those Bible books were actually written contemporaneously or well after the supposed foretold events and that there were dozens, if not hundreds, of messiahs running around Judea all in the first century, all proclaiming that they are the prophesied redeemer, all performing signs and miracles. And we just happen to remember the one guy who happened to have staying power. It's not as impressive as I used to think. But the thoughts on fascism from a man who had firsthand experience with it, who spoke passionately about the dangers of authoritarianism on the left and right, being no fan of Stalinism or Mayoism, that holds a lot of weight, at least for me personally. The fact that he wrote the essay 25 years ago and he died before Trump was elected to office, you can't argue that he was constructing his argument against a particular person or regime. In fact, in the essay, he takes great care not to do that. And if you think, like I do, that his essay is a persuasive description of fascism and that description fits America in 2020 or any country you live in or maybe neighbor, that'd be cause for alarm. Now, I'm going to link to the full text of the essay in the show notes, and I encourage everyone to read it for themselves. It's it's not that long. It doesn't take that long to read. But Mr. Echo came up with 14 distinguishing characteristics of fascism, and I want to go over them one by one. And before we begin, it's important to note that we might not expect a proto-fascist government to exhibit all of these signs or to fully manifest a mature display of all of the characteristics. It's also important to note that these are not just characteristics of an individual or a government or a political system, although some are, but really these are attitudes that are allowed to creep up in a population. These corrosive attitudes reflect and amplify each other. And as a population's attitudes become more open to fascism, fascist leaders arise to inflame these attitudes, which leads to more leaders reflecting these values more closely and so on and so forth. And it's important to make these distinctions because at the risk of pointing out the obvious, if Umberto Eco is right about his fascist formula, and if you waited until a society met all of them 100%, from the political leadership and institutions down to the people itself, you'd be too late to do anything to stop it. 
It's also entirely possible that some of these attitudes might express themselves in centrist, liberal, and leftist segments of the population as well. Echo admits as much in his essay. It's possible that some of these attitudes and features have expressed themselves in political bodies that you might agree with and in politicians that you admire. I'd be really skeptical if you're perception if you aren't able to pin at least a few of these things on the Obama administration. Because fascism doesn't spring up overnight. It's not something you can turn on and off like a light switch. It's something that grows and festers over time. And I hope you'll see how these principles and qualities interlock and grow stronger and build on each other as each successive feature manifests in society. The first is a cult of tradition, and not just tradition, but tradition seen through the lens of syncretism. Syncretism is a fun little word that means the merging and blending of different religious and cultural practices. To give a pop culture example, the High Septon staff in the Game of Thrones universe was said to be carved from a weirwood tree. The High Septon was the leader of the faith of the new gods, while his staff was carved from a tree sacred to the faith of the old gods. So these interlocked and informed each other. Heading over to a real life example, most modern Christian celebrations of holidays or holy days are great examples of this, like Easter. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ have to do with the rabbits to lay eggs? Nothing. But when the Roman Empire spread Christianity as the official state's religion, they co-opted existing pagan fertility rites celebrated in the spring from the peoples they conquered and then merged those into their society and culture. The pagan rites involved symbols of birth and fertility like the egg and the rabbit. Then you give it the name of an ancient pagan fertility goddess, Ostara, and bam, you got a religious holiday that everybody in the Holy Roman Empire can feel good about celebrating. And we've talked before about how many social conservatives fetishize ancient philosophers and leaders from antiquity. You'll often see busts of Greek and Roman noblemen in their YouTube videos and on their Twitter. They'll rail against what they call modern degeneracy and often are staunchly opposed to LGBT rights, oblivious to the fact that ancient Greeks and Romans practiced homosexuality freely and openly and would find our modern notions of what is and isn't gay bizarre. They say nothing of the practice of pederasty, which was essentially sanctioned man-boy love. But this is the cult of tradition. You appeal to some pop culture memory of a before time, and you discard any negative notions that you dislike and don't fit your worldview, and you present it as the alternative to the degenerate culture we live in today. Mainstream conservatives rallied behind the idea of making America great again, but they have trouble pointing to exactly when America wasn't great because if they did that, well, that did that mean they hated America? And they certainly don't like to have to answer questions about who exactly America was great for. The second feature of ur-fascism is a rejection of modernism, but not in all regards because the Nazis, for example, worshipped technology and they were very proud of their industrial achievements. But Echo argues that these were surface-level parts of their ideology. The deeper underpinnings were in the concept of blood and soil. Blood for the traditional German folk and soil, the rural farmland in which they worked. This farm life was idealized as the natural state of the German people, and urban areas were seen as hubs of degeneracy. This national pride in high technology while idealizing farm life is just yet another feature of fascist syncretism. 
And these ideas have been reflected in American thought for quite some time. The focus on Main Street America, the heartland, as opposed to the big cities and the coastal elites. The heartland is real America, but cities are hellholes, lawless, crime-ridden, dependent on welfare, degenerate. And as Echo predicted, you're starting to see a rejection of Enlightenment values at the fringes of this movement. Caitlin Bennett, maybe you've heard of her, the infamous Ken State gun girl, recently posed with a t-shirt emblazoned with Trump is my king. And she's founded Liberty Hangout, an organization that explicitly seeks to return America from a democracy to an explicitly Christian monarchy. Half a million people follow this woman. Recent tweets by Liberty Hangout include democracy is for degenerates. And would you rather have Trump as president for life or risk electing a Democrat every four years? And half a million is a lot of followers, but in the grand scheme of things, it's a, a tenth of a percentage point in the population. But what is worrying is this. Trump, for his part, has been playing footsie with holding on to power ever since he was elected, before he was elected. He refused to say whether he would respect the results of the last election and, in fact, has spent a lot of his time in office spreading conspiracy theories about the popular vote results for 2016. And in May of 2018, he praised the Chinese president for changing the law to allow him to rule for life. I think it's great. Maybe we'll have to give that a shot someday, Trump said to cheers and applause from his supporters. And he's tweeted images suggesting that there will be a Trump 2024, a 2028, a Trump 2032, and so forth. And his supporters cheer. There are a hell of a lot of his followers who might not want Trump as their king per se, not right now, but it's clear that Enlightenment ideals like self-governance aren't the brightest stars in their personal constellations. The third feature of Ur-Fascism is a cult of action for action's sake. Echo writes, action being beautiful in itself, it must be taken before or without any previous reflection. Thinking is a form of emasculation. In fascist societies, thinking and reasoning are deprecated. Previous fascist regimes decried intellectualism and distrusted intellectual institutions. For example, describing universities as nests of communist degenerates. Accusing a free press of being partisan liars. Trump in February of 2016 says he loves his poorly educated voters who disproportionately support him. And he threatened in July of this year to take away universities and schools tax exempt status because of their supposed radical left indoctrination. Interestingly, his administration also rescinded the Johnson Amendment, which prohibited churches and other tax-free organizations from participating in political campaigns or supporting any one candidate for office. Universities are muzzled and defunded for teaching liberal values, but churches can actively campaign and promote conservative ideas and candidates. Echo's fourth point is that any disagreement is treason. This stands in contrast to scholarly and scientific methods which encourage open disagreement as a way to improve knowledge. Claims are advanced and are peer-reviewed. Theories are tested by experiment and analysis of data. Eventually, the more correct ideas win out and become the consensus. These practices are the natural enemy of syncretistic traditionalism, which, as we've seen, is an irrational hodgepodge of contradictory ideals, histories, and cultures. These would all be picked apart by any intellectually rigorous criticism, and they have been. So they must be resisted and seen as a form of heresy. For a long time, this problematic brew of America, love it or leave it, has been growing in the American populace. And now we're seeing it preached from the highest pulpit in the land. 
I'm sure many of you saw this week's presidential debate where he renewed his complaints about being treated unfairly by the press, his disdain for his own experts. In an age where we have more access to information than in any time in human history, he belittles reporters and journalism, attacks expert opinion, calls for changes in libel laws so he can punish reporting that he doesn't like, and suspends White House daily briefings for well over a year. During his campaign rallies, he routinely encouraged the crowd to all turn in unison and boo and jeer the journalists who are required to be there to cover the event. As a result, polling has tracked the erosion of trust in the press. According to a Pew Research poll from January 24, 2020, for the first time, a plurality of Republican voters distrust mainstream media outlets, with notable exceptions for Fox News and radio personalities like Rush Limbaugh, who, of course, staunch supporters of this administration. The fifth feature is a fear of difference. Rigorous debate and disagreement is a sign of intellectual diversity, which is often a result of diversity of thought and experience, which in turn is mostly driven by actual diversity in people. But fascism, by contrast, attempts to divide people into in and out groups, the real citizens versus the intruders. Echo writes that thus, ur-fascism is racist by definition. Is America racist? Well, I've argued extensively on this podcast that, yeah, yeah, it is. If not explicitly racist, it's racist in its structures and its systems. It might be a recovering racist country prone to advancement and setback, but by no means are we out of the, the racist woods yet. There's just no other way, I think, to explain the underrepresentation of minorities at the highest echelons of business and politics, and yet their overrepresentation in crime statistics and poverty. For more details, you can check out Three Right Turn Six, The Unbearable Whiteness of Being, or Three Right Turn Sixteen, Walking in the Snow. But is Trump personally racist? Unless your barrier for declaring someone racist is so high that you just require them to come out and say, yeah, actually, I'm a racist, then I think the answer is yes. The above podcasts point out all the white supremacists and nationalists that he has and has had in his administration, all the quotes. And again, in his recent debate performance, he once again refused to unequivocally condemn white nationalists and instead encouraged them to stand by, called for someone to do something about the violence in our cities and called for his followers to watch the polls very carefully this election. Watch for what? What can a common citizen watch for at their polling locations? Are they going to be checking IDs? Will they have access to registration rolls so they can check addresses and voter status? Are they going to be counting ballots? Well, fuck no. They're going to be looking for people who they feel like don't belong there. What criteria will they be using to make that determination? What recourse will they have if they find someone who thinks they don't look like they belong? Working up people to go to the polls with no actual directive other than to watch carefully is a recipe for voter intimidation. And which voters will they be intimidating? Well, we all know the answer to that, don't we? A sixth sign of fascism is that it derives from individual or social frustration. Echo writes that historical fascism was an appeal to a frustrated class suffering from an economic crisis or feelings of political humiliation and frightened by the pressure of lower social groups. Much ink has been spilt by the quote unquote economic anxiety of Trump supporters. They worry about immigrants taking their jobs and leeching off the social safety nets. 
not at the corporations exploiting these immigrants for their labor or shipping off jobs overseas to exploit native populations. No, it's directed at these immigrants and foreigners themselves to what I'm sure is to the delight of corporations. And we've seen massive backlash about Hollywood and other segments of pop culture like video games, quote unquote, shoving social justice down our throats, making it so hard for white guys to just sit down and enjoy their hobbies like sports without having to think about politics. You know, when you think about it, it's actually white people that are the most discriminated people in the world. You can say whatever you want about them, and it's okay. These attitudes are increasingly common. And this despite whites still dominating the cultural, political, and economic landscape of the country. Which brings us to the seventh feature of fascism, an obsession with a plot. Echo writes, in fascist psychology, there is an obsession with a plot, possibly an international one. Its followers must feel besieged. This feeds off the previous economic and social anxiety. Echo points out that the easiest way to do this is to appeal to xenophobia, the alien, the immigrant, the foreigner as a threat. But the best kind of enemy is one that is both within and without. They're scary when they're outside our borders because they're different. But they're really scary when they're within our borders because then they can insidiously plot and spread their dangerous cultures and ideas and establish footholds on the inside and bring in more and more until the original inhabitants, the real Americans, they're outnumbered and overrun. You see this in the obsession with immigration and refugees taking over. You see this in the obsession with Muslims imposing Sharia law. That's the root of the anti-Semitism in historic fascism. Jewish people made very convenient scapegoats because they were cosmopolitan and spread throughout the world, but they're also your neighbors living next door. They could be anywhere and everywhere behind every international or intellectual institution. Which leads to the eighth feature, the enemy must be both strong and weak. You tell the people that they're beset on all sides, they're besieged, but you can't have them give up and give in to apathy. That's not going to do for your action for action's sake culture that you're creating. So you must convince them that by banding together, it's just possible that they can defeat the enemy. And by continually shifting the rhetorical focus, you can magnify or diminish whatever strengths or weaknesses you want the enemy to have. The enemy can be genetically inferior or culturally inferior, but yet always capable of threatening the way of life of the superior and righteous majority. Echo writes that this is why fascist regimes ultimately are self-defeating, because they force fights with enemies they themselves create, but they can't objectively assess the force of. Now, while we mercifully have, for the most part, avoided getting into any actual shooting wars of late, you can see signs of this inability to objectively assess our enemies in economic hostilities. For example, many experts say that we're on the losing end of a Trump trade war started with China, a trade war that you'll remember Trump said would be very good and very easy to win, just like the Eastern Front of World War II. A Brookings Institute report from August 2020 summarized that the ultimate results of the phase one trade deal between China and the United States and the trade war that preceded it have significantly hurt the American economy without solving the underlying economic concerns the trade war was meant to resolve. The consequences that have followed in the wake of the economic clash have served only to exacerbate 
bilateral relations. They added in their analysis that Trump's prioritization of the trade deal and deprioritization of all other dimensions of the relationship produced a more permissive environment for China to advance its interest abroad and oppress its own people at home, securing the knowledge that American response would be muted by a president who was reluctant to lose the deal. Unfortunately, Echo writes that fascism is incapable of peace because the next distinguishing trait is that pacifism is trafficking with the enemy. Life then becomes a state of permanent warfare. If by some miracle one enemy is defeated, another must take its place, or else the framework that society is built on, that of the in-group standing in opposition to an existential threat, it completely falls apart. Fascism has no plans on what to do if it achieves its only in-state that would be acceptable to it, which is the complete economic, political, and military control over the entire world. Fascism will always be looking for the next trade war, the next internal unrest to quell, the next nation that needs to be invaded to secure its people's prosperity. The tenth feature of fascism is a contempt for the weak. Echo says this is the natural outgrowth of the aristocratic and militaristic lens the ideology views the whole world through. If every true citizen belongs to the best, most exceptional people of the world, what does that mean for the citizens that just don't measure up? We've seen this contempt for the weak on prime display during the coronavirus pandemic, haven't we? How often have you heard that the 200,000 dead don't matter because they were the elderly or had pre-existing conditions. It's not something for a real citizen to fear. A real citizen would put him or herself at risk for the good of the country and its economy. Except it's not really a risk, right? Because real citizens are strong and healthy and they're not going to get sick. And if you do, well, too fucking bad. Because I guess you weren't a real citizen who had any value because if you did, you wouldn't be dead. Echo also predicted this feature would lead to a permanent squabbling amongst the leadership because each level of the hierarchy has disdain for the level below it. I think it's an easy case to make that this has been on full display in the Trump administration since practically day one. It's the reason there's been so much court intrigue at the White House. It's the reason why there are so many leaks and anonymous op-eds pointing fingers, shifting blame, dragging each other down. There's no unity and loyalty based on a singular purpose and shared personal respect. There's only contempt for the weak, for ones who can no longer serve their purpose, and they must be sacrificed or discarded or fall on their swords, or they must made to be part of the enemy and defeated. Because fascism is locked in an eternal war and manifests contempt for the weak, the 11th feature is that everyone must become a hero. In most mythologies and societies, it's understood that not everyone is heroic. Heroes are exceptional, which is why we celebrate them. It's understood that in Star Wars, not everyone can be Luke Skywalker or Leia. It's understood that in America, not everyone's going to win a Congressional Medal of Honor. But with fascism, heroism is the expectation. It's the norm. In normal societies, the population is taught that death is unpleasant, but it can be met with dignity and honor. Whereas in fascist societies, they see heroic death as an ideal to be aspired to. Fascist societies often fetishize death. They incorporate skulls and other death motifs, not just among their military units, which, you know, that can be expected. But 
They're embraced by their civil institutions as well. Echo cites the Spanish fascist movement known as Falangism and their motto, Viva la Muerte, or Long Live Death, which, damn, speaking of an irrational, self-contradicting ideology, Long Live Death. I would suggest that these attitudes are also maturing rapidly in 21st century America. Our cops are increasingly militarized, thinking of themselves as the thin line that stands between civil society and utter chaos. It's not uncommon to see cops with Punisher skull tattoos and patches. In 2017, an entire police department in eastern Kentucky emblazoned their squad cars with giant Punisher skulls that also combined the thin blue line flag. And in 2016, a police officer named Philip Brailsford shot a man to death as he was weeping, begging for his life, crawling face down in a hotel hallway, struggling to comply with contradictory orders. It was later found out that Officer Brailsford had customized the AR-15 he used to kill the man with the words, you're fucked. Increasingly, it's becoming common for far-right reactionaries to show up at protests and other political events in full body armor, bearing powerful weapons. They're covered with skulls, racist slogans, and patches like the three percenters, which demonstrate their willingness to take up arms against the government and their fellow citizens. And these people are coddled and often encouraged by law enforcement. Which smoothly leads us up to the 12th feature of ur-fascism, machismo and weaponry. Fascist attitudes disdain the weak as we previously mentioned, which implies a lack of respect for women and a condemnation of non-standard relationship structures and sexual activities. Being gay or transgender is seen as degeneracy. Things have to be rigidly divided into manly acceptable activities and those that are less than. If you don't drink milk, you're a soy boy. If you don't maintain rigid control of your woman, you're a cuck. But on the other hand, if you look like you walked off the cover of Modern Warfare 3, well, you're a real man. Ready to defend your homestead, your hometown, your country, the folk. You're a wolf or a sheep, a man or a soy boy cuck, a chad or a virgin. It's interesting that the Proud Boys, which recently have gained a national spotlight due to Trump telling them to stand by in this week's presidential debate, have four requirements for membership. One, you have to take a loyalty oath where you declare yourself a quote-unquote proud Western chauvinist who refuses to apologize for creating the modern world. Next, you get other local Proud Boys to form a circle and Beat the shit out of you until you can recite random pop culture trivia. For example, rattling off the names of five breakfast cereals. Third, you must get a Proud Boy tattoo and, I swear I'm not making this up, agree to not masturbate. And and this is for real. Uh, Finally, to achieve full membership status, you must engage in violence on behalf of the movement, which amounts usually to beating up some random protester or otherwise engaging in political violence in our streets. And these are the very fine people that Trump wants to stand by to do something about the violence in our cities. The 13th principle or feature of ur-fascism is selective populism. In democracy, an individual's rights are protected, but the individual has no power to create and pass policy. To be politically effective, then, an individual has to join with others because we follow the decisions of a majority, again, so long as those decisions don't strip others of their rights. 
But in fascism, individuals have no intrinsic value or rights. Instead, they get abstracted to a concept, the people. And the people have a common will. They all want one thing. Everyone's agreed. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. But the people aren't all one. No large number of human beings, not certainly 330 million people living in a country as massive and diverse as the United States, are ever going to have universally common interests and ideals and goals. But that doesn't matter because the people speak and the leader voices their will for them. If you don't agree, then you're not with the people. And it's just a matter of time until you're the enemy. So if I were you, I wouldn't be too loud and open about that opinion. Thus, the individual citizen is stripped of their agency to act. They're only useful as long as they are willing to play the performative role of the people. Echo wrote that in historical fascist regimes, the leaders would draw vast crowds at places like the Nuremberg Stadium and give speeches to passionate crowds. And you could roll film of these events and listen to the roars of crowds on the radio. And you were to think, look at all of these tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people here. They're all speaking as one. They're all in unity. This is the people. But he also predicted that this wouldn't always be the case. He said that a televised and internet people where the actions and emotional responses of a small and selected group can be presented as the people's voice would work just as well. You don't need stadiums full of people when you have talking heads like Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson and Rush Limbaugh speaking for them. And millions of people watch and listen to them. But you also have hundreds and even thousands of things like videos on YouTube that show minorities attacking white people or looting and rioting. Not data, not statistics, not criminal justice reports, just what amounts to highly emotional anecdotal data. But Aaron, if there are thousands of videos, doesn't that indicate that this is some kind of big problem? No, not in a nation of 330 million people. The fact that people make points like that shows how effective this point of Ur fascism is. We're living in a period of historically low violent crime, and yet our prisons swell. We're living in unprecedented times of economic inequality, yet we give massive tax cuts to the rich. Is this the will of the majority of the people? No, Trump didn't even win the popular vote the first time. We're living in an unprecedented era of low violent crime, and yet it's common in the last few months to hear hyperbole like America's cities are burning when that was never true. There was unrest in small numbers of cities confined to a handful of blocks. But when you have 100 live streamers broadcasting footage from every possible angle, giving each incident unprecedented coverage, it gives the impression that there's nothing but chaos out there. Then the talking heads get in front of this cherry-picked footage and decry the violence and wonder, what must be done about it? We need a return to law and order. Which led up to the incredible moment in last week's debate where President Trump was asked by a Fox News moderator to disown and rebuke white nationalists and other hate groups that have started showing up at these protests often armed, often violent, very macho, none of them masturbating. And what does he do? He tells them to stand back and stand by because somebody has to do something about all the left-wing violence in our cities. And you know it, I know it, everyone knows it, the people have spoken. Do you see how this works? 
And while Echo was right about the use of TV and the Internet to magnify extreme minority opinions, he's wrong that we also have a president that loves to appear in front of thousands of cheering people and declare it the real America, real patriots. And the media inevitably covers them extensively and the fiction solidifies. While it's true that the TV and Internet can and does magnify extreme minority opinions on the dreaded both sides, you have to ask yourself... Which is really representative of the respective mainstream? Has Biden retweeted pro-Antifa, black bloc, violent leftist extremist? Is he signal-boosting personalities that engage in unfounded speculation and conspiracy theories? Trump does this routinely. On this year's July 4th, a day when we, the people, are supposed to come together and celebrate just the awesomeness of America, he retweeted 14 tweets made by QAnon conspiracy accounts. 14 tweets. One day. America's birthday. QAnon, if you didn't know, is a complex conspiracy theory that alleges that a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles is running a global child sex trafficking ring, plotting against President Trump, while Trump is planning a day of reckoning known as the storm in which thousands of the members of the cabal will be arrested. Does the left have television networks and newspapers that give fawning speeches to Marxist revolutionaries and eat-the-rich types? If your most left-wing outlets are MSNBC and The Washington Post, that says a hell of a lot, doesn't it? NPR, PBS, Marxist bastions. Where is the violent left represented in Congress? Last week, the House passed a resolution pledging a peaceful transfer of power in the event that the president loses the election, and five Republicans voted against it, including... Three right turns racist white nationalist whipping boy and Iowa representative Steve King and Matt Gates. Matt Gates, you might remember, is a representative out of Florida that looks like a lazy town villain and was last seen in March of this year wearing a gas mask in Congress to mock the Democratic coronavirus hoax that has gone on to kill 200,000 Americans. Now Matt's going to go on this November and he's going to win his district handily. It's a done deal because facts don't matter anymore. Not to the people. Which brings us to the 14th and final distinguishing feature of fascism. It's propensity to engage in newspeak. Newspeak, of course, comes from George Orwell's classic dystopian novel, 1984, which is one of my favorite and most influential books. And it has to be said that Newspeak was Orwell's idea of the official language of Ingsoc, or English socialism, which depicts the kind of authoritarian leftist cult of personality that you found in Soviet Russia and still find in communist China and North Korea. And as I explained before, Echo believed, and I agree, that fascism shares several key features with any sort of authoritarian regime. All fascist systems have tended to replace school books with simplified and streamlined versions of their cult of tradition, with the vocabulary watered down to a very low reading level. The more simple and basic, the less room for complex thought and critical reasoning, and the larger mass of the people that you can appeal to. I think we see this reflected in Trump's limited vocabulary. There's been several studies done of his public speeches and his Twitter feed, and they found that his vocabulary hovers between a third and fourth grade level. We've all seen him struggle in interviews to articulate complex and nuanced policies and positions, instead preferring to just pivot to his slogans or resorting to lies and distortions to distract. 
And again, I admit that this is one of those fucking both sides issues. But again, ur fascism doesn't require only one part of society to participate in its thought or culture. Ur fascism isn't about Trump. It's not about Republicans. It's not about conservatives or boomers or proud boys or whatever. Ur fascism describes a political and cultural conditions that are conducive to producing fascism. That's it. The fact that it's in our midst is a problem, not because it's a problem on the extreme left or right. I want to conclude with a reminder of why fascism is bad. You know, the Nazis weren't bad because they abandoned democracy, built concentration camps, engaged in ethnic cleansing, and invaded and brutalized their neighbors. Yes, yes, those were hideous things. But you could make an argument that, hey, maybe we should try fascism again and maybe things would turn out differently. Maybe there's some core intrinsic goodness to this authoritarian dictatorship fascist. But you can't make that argument because fascism inevitably leads to abandoning democracy vilifying and destroying a designated enemy minority class and brutalizing one's neighbors. It's like the scorpion and the parable of the scorpion and the frog. We all know that one, right? The scorpion convinces the frog to carry him across a stream because the scorpion can't swim. But the frog says, hey, you're just going to sting me, man. And the scorpion says, relax. If I was going to do that, we'd both drown. So the frog's like, oh, that makes sense and agrees. And he takes him across and halfway through the scorpion stings the frog right in his back paralyzing him and as they're both sinking beneath the creek's current the scorpion apologizes and says hey what can i do it's my nature fascism just can't help itself because of its paradoxical and ahistorical cult of tradition because of its inability to correctly diagnose problems or effectively fight an enemy it can't even deliver on its promises to the people the good folk, the people of the land, the hardworking, honest, rural types, because it's not a serious ideology. And once it runs out of one enemy, none of their problems are solved. So there must be a new, even more insidious threat. And again and again until they are destroyed from without or they destroy themselves from within. I guess it's up to you to decide if Umberto Eco's essay is persuasive to you. If you feel like I do, that it's a reasonable working definition, some grand unified theory of fascism, it might alarm you to know that he was of the opinion that all it takes is one feature to become prominent in a society. Just one. That's all it takes. And then the other 14 coagulate around it like a blood clot forming in a wound. As you see, they overlap, interlock, reinforce one another. To the extent that we have more than one of these features in our society and that we've had them for some time, we should all be alarmed. This is why this election this year is so important. The fuel's there. The heat's there. It's a backdraft situation. All it takes is for someone to open the door, let that situation have a little oxygen, and it's going to blow. For the past few decades, as these features have been raising their ugly heads once again, and others have began to coagulate around them, we've been somewhat fortunate to have leaders who, for the most part, tried to pour cold water on the situation and not inflame it. But now, history has delivered us an arsonist in charge instead of a firefighter. In his first term, Trump had some people in his cabinet of principle and honor. I mean, you can say what you want about the politics and personality of Rex Tillerson or, or Jim Mattis, but they were serious people. They weren't fools. They weren't madmen. 
But those people in the cabinet, they're all gone. There's also an extensive group of nonpartisan professional people built up over several administrations in the executive branch, the so-called deep state that believed in the mission of good governance. Those people have largely been purged. We need to win this election, not just election. We need wins at the state and local level. Ur fascism works from the bottom up, and we need to direct our actions accordingly. We need senators. We need governors. We need representatives. We need state legislatures to begin to dismantle the culture of Ur fascism. And I don't care if you live in a swing state or an ultra red state. We need your vote. I don't care if you live in a state so blue that Biden's going to win it in a landslide. We need your votes, too. Not just to run up the score on this thing and put it beyond the contest and contention, which is a whole other fucking subject. But if Trump prevails through some razor thin electoral college win, we need to run up the score so that his mandate will be a joke that he can't speak for the people. It's one thing to lose the popular vote by three million. But what if it's 15 million, 30 million? At what point will the real people and not just a performative collection of folks on TV and at Trump rallies step forward and say enough. The system must change. We must change. It's starting to become too late to register for this election. Vermont closed their registrations on October 3rd. Alaska closes up on October 4th. Many states close on the 5th and only a handful allow registration past mid-October. So you got to act quickly. Get your friends and family organized. Have a plan to vote, whether in person or mail-in. Get the vote411.org right now to register to vote and find your sample ballot. See what issues are coming up. Investigate the candidates. But make sure your voice is heard. And don't get discouraged. Don't think this election will be a sham. There's going to be some dirty tricks. But if we run up the score, it's not going to be close enough to matter. Don't be afraid. Don't fall for the false selective populism that makes you feel divided and alone and split off from the people. And finally, do a mental inventory of yourself and your communities and think about whether any of these properties of Ur fascism have crept in and taken root. After all, while I think most of the hand wringing regarding cancel culture is overblown and a distraction, at its core lies a real concern. Disagreement is treason is a core principle of fascism. We don't have to entertain every non-serious thing that comes out of a person's mouth, but we do have to tolerate differences in opinion and work to convince, to cajole, to bring people along with us rather than enforce groupthink. Are we perhaps guilty of thinking of our political enemies as stupid and cowardly, and yet they keep winning and kicking our ass again and again? Well, perhaps we're underestimating them. Or maybe we're not willing to effectively wield power when it's in our grasp. And are we becoming obsessed with plots and conspiracy theories? How many of you, when Trump announced that he was sick with the coronavirus, took it at face value? And how many have run wild with thoughts of fifth dimensional chess being played? And I get it. I'm not picking on you. Those impulses are understandable. The man's a compulsive liar. And he, there's no lows that he won't stoop to. But this tendency can be dangerous if it eventually leads you to reject journalism and expert consensus. We can't have it. Are we allowing our media and intellectual diet to become too narrow, rigid, and simplistic? Or are we always trying to approach complex problems and ideas with the nuance and empathy that they deserve? Well, 
if we're not, and if we're doing some of these other things, we might be well on to creating our own idiosyncratic cult of tradition. And if you believe Mr. Echo, it's always going to take you down the dark path. It just needs one, one of those principles to take hold. Thanks again for listening to three right turns. I'm sorry about the delay uh, in this podcast, but it's been a hell of a few weeks. And as I said in the uh, last brief announcement, I really wanted to cover the presidential debate live. And I'm I'm really glad I did because so many people showed up and it was a hell of a lot better to go through that whole ordeal with a community than it would be alone on my couch, just screaming into the void. So I'm going to commit to doing all of the presidential and vice presidential debates going forward. Uh, Again, go to youtube.com slash Swizzbold. If you want to uh, join those live shows about 15, 20 minutes before the debate start. Uh, But, you know, then again, who knows how many debates we're going to have going forward with the, the, the infection running roughshod through the Republican administration and, and establishment now. Who knows? And if you missed the debate, I archived the whole thing with my commentary in the community's chat at youtube.com slash Swizzbold. So please follow Swizzbold on Twitter, or you can follow me personally at Aaron Hubbard BM to stay up to date with the latest live events and other things I'm doing on the side. And again, I really, really appreciate everyone who watched live with me. If you have feedback for this or any other three right turns topic, or you want to suggest topics or people to interview, please send that to three RT at swizzbold.com. You can also post about each show on reddit.com slash R slash swizzbold. And I think it's about time for another feedback episode. That's the plan I have for the next three right turns, a mini topic, then answering the old mailbag. So if you've been holding back, now's the time to drop a line at three RT at swizzbold.com. If you appreciate what we do here at Three Right Turns and on the Swizzbold Network, please consider giving us your support at patreon.com slash Swizzbold. Support entitles you to custom Reddit flair and access to a Patreon-only member content like our monthly live streams. Speaking of which, one's com- coming up this Thursday on October 8th at 8 p.m. Sign up now to gain access to this and nearly a year's worth of other content at patreon.com slash Swizzbold. Special thanks goes out to our Fred Level supporters, Kira Grushow, Arvin Rao, Brandon DeVito, Brian Rasmussen, Lisa Singleton, George P. Burdell, Jared Harrelman, Jordan Hoyt, Greg Rasp, Angela Morano, David Satterley, Laura Luthi, Mark Hahn, James Taylor, and Jenny. As always, we couldn't do this without you. Thanks again for listening. Since I'm delayed this week, it won't be much longer than another week before the next episode is going to be ready. And we also dropped a new One Weird Trick episode. It's a pretty exciting episode for Cecily and I because we got to interview a real-life sex therapist on how you can find love, have better relationships, and have better sex. Until next time, go to vote411.org, register to vote, have a plan to vote, vote at your earliest opportunity. Let's run up that score for freedom and democracy. Let's start pouring the buckets of ice water on earth fascism, and let's never, ever stop until that last ember is out. Have a great rest of your week. We'll be right back.